Hello everyone, welcome to Sully Baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from a Sully Baseball studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl on today, the 15th day of October 2017. Hey, um... I haven't recorded a podcast for a while. Certainly my days of the daily podcast are over, but I had been posting a bunch and were promising to post uh, a few a week, and I haven't. And I've got a bunch of people who have asked me, you know, what's going on? I mean, I haven't recorded a podcast through the entire round of the division series, and here we are a couple of games into the league championship series, and What's you know? There's been a ton of baseball stuff going on, and uh, no Sully baseball podcast to talk about them. And yeah, yeah, that's that is true. That is true. I've I've not been recording many podcasts. Um, one of the things that happened is that you know the real life and real world kind of got in the way a little bit, and. There were just there was about a week where even though I was following the games and following what was happening, um, I was taking care of other things going on and sitting down and recording a podcast just didn't seem like the right thing to do or at least something I had the energy to do. Uh, let me give you an idea of. I'm not gonna. Oh, is that a smoke alarm? I really hope no. My smoke alarm needs to have the. Batteries change, so that's what that is. I thought that was a an appropriate distraction here. Let me give you an example of what this last week was like. Uh, the Red Sox played the Astros. My beloved Red Sox played the Astros in the division series, and I, I didn't watch the first game, and which is, seems bizarre because I've really been I really like this Red Sox team, and like here they are, they're in the postseason, and. The reason why I didn't watch the first game was that I was in a session of marriage counseling. And it would not have been a good look for me to be checking the score during the session. And my phone off, I said, there's no distractions or anything like that. And when the the counseling was over... I went back to my car and I just, just out of habit, just turned on. I mean, I wasn't even really interested. I was trying to focusing on the things that we was going on, and I saw that the Red Sox lost eight to two, and that it wasn't really, it was not a very competitive game. You know, it looked like wow, they they fell apart fast soon, and that was it. And I I actually had the thought, man. I'm so happy I was in marriage counseling instead of watching a Red Sox playoff game because that just seemed more pleasant. That's what this week has been like. Um, I, I've, I'm sorry that I, I wish that I didn't have my real life interfering with things, but you know what? Sometimes it happens. And so, but I do want to come back and, and this is one of the things that makes me really happy is doing the podcasts and floating down the River Sully with you, my, my many listeners and friends, and you consider you to be my friends, and I'm going to get my thoughts on some stuff, because there's a lot of stuff to catch up on. Um, first of all, I need to do something about that fire alarm that keeps going beep, beep. 
All right, well, let's just talk about some of the main things. The Red Sox, they lost to the Astros. Uh, that The final game was a very frustrating game because, of course, they had a lead in the eighth inning. They let Chris Sale pitch a little too long. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that the Red Sox had a lot of blown opportunities in that game. They had a bases-loaded situation when they couldn't score. They had a runner thrown out the plate. You know, they had their chances to, to build upon a lead and push it to a game five. Would they have won a game five? I don't know. I think the Astros are a better team. So it's hard to get too frustrated when you lose to the better team. Yes, they had a shot to win that game four. And if you had a game five, you would have Pomerantz pitching. Who knows what would have happened? But you also had no clue who would have been pitching for the Astros because they used everyone as well. It would have been exhausted. So, yeah, maybe they could have won. And if we learned anything, and that is that you could have a team upset in a game five. But I'm not so angry about what happened with the Red Sox because they did about what I thought they were going to do this year. I thought they were going to win the division, but I didn't think they were going to go very far in the playoffs. And they didn't. Now, John Farrell is out. And, I, and I'm not 100% against that. I, I understand why you would keep him. I mean, he, you win back-to-back divisions. He won a World Series with him. You know, I mean, he's, he's the only Red Sox manager to win back-to-back divisions, which sounds strange because they've had stretches where they're in the playoffs three straight years a couple of times under Francona. But it, to be the top of the division back-to-back years, you know, he, he's had a very good run. But when you hear about... The, the clubhouse disarray and everything like that. I'm not there. I'm not behind the scenes. And you could, have, you could have a situation where a team gets to this point and they need to get over the top. And the fact of the matter is, if the Detroit Tigers had a halfway decent bullpen in 2013, then we'd be looking at... John Farrell is a guy who could get the Red Sox into the playoffs, but not to the next level. Because the Tigers should have beaten him in 2013. But they didn't. I give John Farrell, I have nothing but love and respect for John Farrell because of the championship in 2013 and the excitement of the last bunch of seasons. And Red Sox fans should salute him. But it might have been time to move on for someone else. He drove everyone crazy with some of his managerial styles. And... Apparently, behind the scenes, it wasn't so great. If I hear the name Brad Osmus, Red Sox manager, I will take a flamethrower to this place. I know he has a good relationship with Dombrowski based upon their time in Detroit, but from what I saw, Osmus was not a good major league manager with Detroit. Now, it could be a situation like what happened with Frank Kona, like what happened with some people, that they have their first time, they learn from that, they do better the second time around. There have been many instances of that over the years. That's a distinct possibility. Or they could give a chance to someone like Alex Cora, who there apparently is a brilliant managerial prospect for a long time with connections to the Red Sox. I'd have no problem with Cora. I want Dave Martinez. Dave Martinez is sitting there looking like one of the best managerial candidates we've had in a long, long time. The right hand, the the best manager in baseball is Joe Madden. He is. If you want to say, if you want to say it's uh, Bruce Bochy, okay, I'll, I'll listen to Bruce Bochy argument, but the best manager working right now is Joe Madden. 
and his right-hand man from when he was in Tampa Bay and winning pennant and winning the pennant and lots of postseason appearances in Tampa Bay. And now here we are with the chance trying to win back-to-back pennants and another world championship with a Cubs of all team. His right-hand man has been Dave Martinez. And that should be, you know, you should point to the guys like, oh, who's been the right-hand man of a successful manager? Like Joe Madden was when he was with Mike Sosha, like Jim Leyland was when he was with Tony La Russa. That's where you find some of these good managerial candidates. Boom. Martinez is sitting there. There should be a feeding frenzy when you consider the Mets, the Red Sox, the Tigers, the Philadelphia Phillies, and I think the Reds, but who the hell am I to talk, all need a new manager going into the 2018 season, and here's this guy who should be a freaking manager. Oh my God, what the hell is happening with that goddamn, sorry Ray, fire alarm. I'm in another room now. I don't think I could hear the beat. My fire alarm needs to have a new, uh, what's it called, battery. And uh, quite frankly, I don't have the energy to take care of that now. I can only I can only fix so many things now, you know. So just just relax. But I mean, I'm all for Dave Martinez, Red Sox manager. If it's Alex Cora, fine. I don't want it to be Brad Ausmus. I don't want to retread. I'd rather have someone that hey, here's someone who's new and could add some excitement to the team. Either way, I have a ton of respect for the Red Sox and the season they had. And, I'm, you know, they came up short. I didn't expect them to win. There's some years I've expected them to win. This was not one of them. They did very well. And I'm glad they didn't get swept. I mean, the first two games, uh, the 8-2, 8-2, you're like, God, they're not even showing up. And they fall behind 3 nothing early in game three. Like, oh, my God. Are you serious? They're not even going to show up? And then they had the big offensive outburst. And... The final game, while they lost, was was thrilling. It's like, okay, at least they showed up. At least they showed some pride. If they'd gotten swept and each game was just a blowout. The Red Sox have gotten swept before. They got swept last year. But two of those games were one-run game. Easy for you to say. When they got swept by Oakland or Cleveland in the past, they were always competitive games. When they got swept by the White Sox and the Angels, there were competitive games in there. And so when they did manage to get a win against Houston, it's like, okay, there you go. At least you got that. So that's going to be the end of my Red Sox talk today because there's a lot of other things to talk about. Uh, I can I cannot get over the fact that Cleveland lost. And to me, that's one of the most stunning, that's the most stunning postseason loss since the Phillies losing in 2011. In 2011, that whole season... I had an eye on the Phillies thinking, we're witnessing what will be one of the great Philadelphia teams in history when they had Roy Halladay and Cliff Lee and Cole Hamels and Ryan Howard and Jimmy Rollins and Chase Sutley and all of them. It was like, this is the greatest Phillies team that will add on the championship they won in 2008 and add the pennant they won in 2009. This is going to be the team that will cement it. And they lost to a Cardinals team that went on to win the World Series that just didn't look like they belonged on the same field. And here we have the Yankees. And man, it it pisses me off that I have to give tribute to the Yankees and tip my hat to the Yankees and respect to the Yankees. But I have to. The Yankees 
won 90s, what was it, 90 games they won, whatever it was, the first number was a nine. And they are a good team. They're not a great team, but they're a good team. And they got two by four those first two games, especially the stupid decision by Girardi that looked like it was going to haunt them. Looks like he was going to get fired. And that was going to be, oh, that was their best chance to win that game when they didn't you know, call for a, a challenge on the hit by pitch. And then, you know, there, it's what, it was a one-run, it was a one-run game in game three. Say, like, ah, it doesn't matter. The Indians are going to win. Yeah, give the Yankees credit. They squeaked out a game. Bauer dominated one. Kluber's going to win a game. And they just, Indians just couldn't get the big hit. They could not get the big hit. And one thing, I, I don't want to hear any Cleveland fan complain about the big-budgeted Yankees. This is not a big-budgeted situation. This is not because the Yankees have a huge payroll. The Indians were the better team. The Indians were the team that added Juan Encarnacion and Jay Bruce to the situation. The Indians are the team whose Cy Young candidate is a veteran who already has one, while the Yankees' best pitcher is a young pitcher just fresh up from the minor leagues. The Yankees were the young, scrappy team, albeit they had Tanaka. Yes, they have a few players like Tanaka and and CC Sabathia, who both both of them pitched well and are big time free agents. Fine. The Indians were the better team. They lost because Corey Kluber's ERA was over twelve, and his ERA over twelve wasn't there because of the Yes Network and the Yankees. Uh, uh, cable money. If Corey Kluber is merely mediocre in the division series, they win. He's the best pitcher in baseball who dominated the second half and had his two worst starts of the year in the division series, including the clinching game. And I mean, I'm looking at this Indians team and say, if not this team, then which one? Everything lined up for them. They have the 22-game winning streak. They have the Cy Young Award winner rested and ready to go. They have a lineup that was balanced top to bottom and an unbelievable bullpen, and they lost to the Yankees. And, I mean, are they going to have a chip on their shoulder? How could they have a bigger chip on their shoulder than going into this year knowing they were one swing away from winning the World Series in... 2016, and everything lined up for this year. All I got to say is this. The last thing I'll say about Cleveland, or the two things I'll say about Cleveland. First of all, Cleveland fans, drop to your knees and thank to whomever you pray to that the Cavaliers won a few years ago. Can you imagine the thoughts going through Cleveland fans if they did at least have one basketball championship to hang their collective hats on? Can you imagine the insanity there that you would throw in the loss of the 2016 World Series and losing five straight potential clinching games? Five straight potential clinching games. Five games where you say, here we are, folks, here we are. And I know they had the lead in a few of them. Unreal. It's unreal. So, oh, the other thing is, No more Wahoo. No more Chief Wahoo. 
Because even if you don't understand that a racist caricature is racist, even if you think, ah, that's politically correct, which, by the way, is a sentence I just would like to throw in the dumpster. Whenever I hear someone talk about political correctiveness, it's that's just code for my parents used to do that no one called that offensive and i want to do it too i mean i'm sorry that's what it's become it's it, it's a meaningless two words together but even if you're one of these people like ah it's politically correct hey how about this i made this point last year it's not like it's a good luck charm it's not like oh but we've won so many times with it think of the most frustrating losses for a Cleveland Indians fan in since they moved into the stadium that was once called Jacobs Field, and I like to call it again. That one nothing loss in the World Series finale against the Braves. The game, you know, the 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 Robbie Alomar home run in 1996 against them. The Jose Mesa on the mound and Edgar Renteria's hit in 1997, falling apart against the Red Sox in 1999, losing that game five against Seattle in 2001, losing game seven in against the Red Sox and holding Kenny Lofton when he could have been the tying run in 2007, with the Cubs winning at home after the rain delay in Game 7 last year, and falling apart. What's the one thing in common? The Chief Wahoo hat, each time. You don't believe me? Look them up. Which game were they not wearing the Chief Wahoo hat? They have this other hat that looks really cool, of which they know it's pretty cool because it's the thing that's on their goddamn batting helmet. Sorry, Ray. So how about you do this? You wear the red hat with a block C at home, the blue hat with a block C on the road next year, and see what happens. Let's end that, shall we? Thanks a bunch. Um, the other team that I had emotional attachments to that somehow lost a series they had no business losing. The Nationals. If not this team, then when? Friend of the podcast, Sean Doolittle, was amazing in the series. Steven Strasburg was unbelievable. The entire narrative was there. You had... Bryce Harper hitting the home run that woke the team up in game two. You had Scherzer and Strasburg each throwing near no-hitters. You had Strasburg answering his critics who was calling him, oh, he's too weak, he's too weak, with the symbol of what Strasburg was in terms of the guy who was held out in 2012, that he was going to be the one who pitches the way into it. And, and... You had the the bullpen was finally locked. They finally had a closer who could lock things down as Doolittle was tremendous in the postseason. They out-hit the Cubs. They out-pitched the Cubs. And they lost. They scored eight runs in a game started by Gio Gonzalez, of which Max Scherzer came out of the bullpen. And they lost. And they've lost... All the one-run games. All the games they could have won to move on. And everything lined up perfectly. That Wade Davis was too tired. And you had that inning. That eighth inning. Where Wade Davis clearly was gassed. He didn't have it. 
And the two batter, he retired one batter in that eighth inning. Got a double play. That's got a, the double play was the biggest uh, uh, part of that inning. Because that could have been a big rally. And then he had Lobaton, a guy who once hit a walk-off postseason homer against Koji Uehara. And now the highlight that people remember for him is getting picked off of first. Now, there have been complaints that that was a ticky-tack play. That he got back and he just lifted his hand up for a second while the glove was on his leg. And said, is that the spirit of having instant replay? Yes. Well, I don't understand the controversy. I don't understand the controversy. Here's the deal. You keep your hand on the bag until the guy's glove is off you. Or you keep your hand on the bag, you look at the ump, and you say, time, so you can get up. If you take your hand off, even for a split second, and his glove is still on you, congratulations, you're out. That's called base, that's what's, you know, if that didn't happen, and we say, oh, wait, he was out, and the Nationals would have rallied and beaten the Cubs, Cub fans would have had all the right in the world to say he was actually out. That's what replay does. It shows what actually happened. That's why I want replay. I, Lobaton took his hand off the base, even for a second. Keep the, the hand on the base. They're looking. They're cameras. They could do that whole matrix spin around thing if they wanted to. Keep your hand up. Look at the up in the face and say, time. To Paula Chambers brothers and say, time. Anyone gets that reference? Oh, man. Just, uh, uh, you know, write it to me via Twitter at Sully Baseball. But that's actually happened. So, double play and Lobaton takes his hands off the base. What would have been the greatest rally in Washington history turns into, there you go. There you effing go. And the Nats, like the Indians, are going to go into next year thinking, we did 162 games where everything went right. And we had every reason to win that series. There's no excuse for the Yankees to have defeated the Indians. And the Cubs were outplayed by Washington. And yet, we have the Cubs and the Yankees moving on. It's because of big market. Shut up. It's not because of curses, and it's not because of managers. You know, it's happened to Davey Johnson, Matt Williams, and Dusty Baker. And quite frankly, I don't think any of this was really Dusty's fault. If Lobaton doesn't lift his hand up, I mean, I don't remember a lot of bad decision-making. Granted, I'm taking care of stuff in my personal life, so I may even not have had the uh, uh, surgeon's precision of breaking down the series. But if not these teams, then which teams? And just look around and see how quickly a team can fall off the map. You don't believe me? How fast did the Phillies fall? Say that five times fast. Think about the Mets. Two years ago, the Mets were in the World Series. Last year, they were hosting a playoff team. Now they're a joke. Things can fall apart fast. It just took one of these years for the Nationals to justify the Strasburg decision in 2012 and make that be 
man, it was the right decision. Because you could point to all the times they did win the division. And this would have been perfect because Strasburg was so easily going to be the MVP of that series. And here we go. The Nats had yet another year where they're one and done. Adios. That leads us to the situation we have right now in the League Championship Series. Now, we, we see the Astros have won two thrillers. And Justin Verlander throwing a complete game victory is, you know, was thrilling, especially when you consider the concept of a lot of times pulling the pitcher after basically one time through the lineup. Now, I'm not an old school guy. I think the old school is tiring. I get why you would have, especially in a postseason, say, all right, let's, let's make sure, you know, the, the starter gets through the lineup one time. And if there's any issues, we're going to go to our bullpen. If you have bullpen depth, and the goal is to win a World Series, instead of showing, yeah, my day, they went nine. I don't care. I'm trying to win a championship in my day. I think that it's, I mean, I've been an advocate of for years of saying, if you don't have the guys who can go nine innings, don't pretend you do. If you, have, if you can set up your pitching staff, that they go three or four, another guy goes two or three, and then someone then you you know mix and match at the end. Yeah, you should be doing that all year. If you're trying to win games, you know, did um, Bob Gibson would go nine? Congratulations, I don't have Bob Gibson, and I get it, especially in the postseason. Say, look, at we're not messing around. We have to win four games, and we'll go to whoever we have to do to mix and match and get it done right. It always annoys me a little bit when it's like the sixth inning, a guy gets an out, there's you know, there's like one out, nobody on, and they make a pitching change. They're going, you know what, what if this game goes deep into extra innings and you've used a quality pitcher for only three pitches? You know, part of me is like, hey, there's no one on base. Let him face the next batter. But you know what? I'm not managing. I'm not managing. The Astros won those first two games against the Yankees. And give the Yankees credit again. Their one-run loss in game one, and yesterday was a tremendous ball game. You know, very well pitched from Verlander. Uh, Severino, uh, who was, you know, who looked very, you know, very good until he got hurt. The Yankee bullpen pitched very, very well. It was tied going into the ninth, and Chapman lost. And, of course, every time Chapman lost, loses a game, uh, I smile because Chapman is an asshole. And it's a great feeling when you see that happen. But it's also, I said, so hey, look at the Astros are the beneficiary of all this. The Astros are the beneficiary of the Indians losing those games because they now have the home field advantage through the American League playoffs. And they won two tough games against the Yankees. And quite frankly, it's harder to beat the better team four times. I think it's possible that the Astros can win one game in the Bronx and one game at home. And that's what they need to do to go to the World Series. The Yankees have to be almost perfect the rest of the way. Can the Yankees do it? Sure. They've got a good record at home. And hell, I thought the Indians were better than the Astros. But they have to beat the Astros four times, not three. And game two looked like the game that they would have been able to steal. 
especially if they pushed it to extra innings and get Verlander out of the game. But something that's really worth pointing out in your pal Sully's humble opinion, and that is, while this could be a great moment, obviously the city of Houston has had the horrible, the horrible uh, uh, hurricane that hit and the, and the city needing to be rebuilt and the emotion that comes behind that in any championships for them. And that they have some, you know, two veterans that with, with big Hall of Fame credentials in Verlander and Beltran looking to get their first ever championship and exercise some of their postseason demons. But we're also seeing the, basically, the legend building and the potential Hall of Fame building of Jose Altuve. I'm dead serious about this. Jose Altuve is putting down the groundwork for his Hall of Fame candidacy this October. And by by that I mean when you look at when you when you think about what a Hall of Famer has on their resume. For the most part, it's these two things are the biggest parts of a Hall of Fame resume. The the career stats, you know, the milestones faced, the long career and the milestones faced. Uh, also, the highlights, the moments, the the MVPs, the the you know, not that postseason moments are required, but they certainly help when they say you know he was the most valuable player and led his team to the championship and the World Series MVP, this, that, or the other thing. Yes, there are players in the in the Hall of Fame who never played in the postseason. Artie Banks is a great example of that. There are people who have played the postseason and didn't particularly fare well. Ted Williams flopped in his only appearance in the postseason. But it does help in building your case. Jose Altuve uh, is has played seven years with the Houston Astros. He's currently 27 years old. He's got a long time ahead of him. He currently has 1,250 hits and is getting more than 200 hits a year and has won three batting titles and has OPS above uh, 900 for the last bunch of years and has turned into a quality home run hitter and stolen base player as well. He is on pace to be near 1,500 hits before his 29th birthday, which means he has a realistic shot if he continues at any amount of pace for 3,000 hits. So if he becomes a stat compiler with October Glory then that's a Hall of Fame candidacy. And if he gets that Hall of Fame glory out of the way, if he gets that, if he gets that postseason highlights out of the way, what that means to his, his Hall of Fame candidacy is it just, it just rises exponentially. Let's go over what he's been doing, shall we? He batted 5.33 in the division series against the Red Sox with a 1.765 OPS, and that includes the game where he hit three home runs in the opener. Well, he's gone. He went three for four in the opener against the Yankees and two for four. So he's now uh, five for eight against the Yankees, scored the winning run, of which he did so in a super aggressive base running move. In the postseason, he's batting uh, 565. His OPS is 1.586. And he has had been in highlights left and right. What I'm saying is, 
Jose Altuve is getting the hard part of his Hall of Fame resume done. I think he's going to be the most valuable player in the league. He, it might be Aaron Judge, and I won't blame voters for voting for Aaron Judge, but it's a real good shot that it's going to be Altuve. Being an MVP helps. Piling up the stats help. Being a big October performer also helps. And with each at-bat, with each hit, with each sparkling play, with each clutch run, with each time he goes all the way around the bases and scores and this, that, and the other thing, Altuve is adding to that resume. And what I want us to do as baseball fans is to appreciate that, is to not take that for granted, to realize what we could be watching. If the Astros go on to win the World Series, and my God, they look like they could do that very thing, Altuve will be one of the main reasons that Houston has its first ever championship. And we'll be thinking about that years later, assuming Altuve doesn't get hurt. Assuming Altuve continues to produce at a high level for the next five, six, seven years, which is not out of the realm of possibility. That if he does that and we wind up seeing this guy who's a 3,000 hit, former MVP, former postseason hero, that we can say, wow, we saw that unfold before our very eyes. And to really appreciate that when it happens. And baseball should take that, really take this to heart. There's a guy who's impossible not to root for. The little guy. The guy who looks like a, he looks like a child when he's out there. He's under five foot eight. Or what, how the hell tall is he? Let's go to baseballreference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth. Guy's five foot six. This is one of the things in baseball that makes it so great. You're a five foot six guy. You're not making it in the NBA. You're not going to be the MVP of the National Football League or the National Hockey League. But you can be in baseball. The sense of a guy who, yeah, he's as tall as you. He's not a big, huge guy, but he's the best. That's the type of person that baseball should be promoting. We have a guy who's playing for, it's funny that people consider Houston to be a small market because it's one of the biggest cities in the country. But there's a guy playing for Houston, a city that's been knocked down. A little guy is the best player in baseball. And let's witness this unfold. Witness this legend. Witness this star. The star isn't just on his hat, but that's who he is. A potential Hall of Fame legend is unfolding with Jose Altuve. The Astros have had several Hall of Famers recently. Lifetime Astros like Bagwell and Biggio. But neither one of those guys have had the Jose Altuve moments of the postseason that he has had. Already he has been a three-time silver slugger, two-time batting title, five-time all-star, gold glove, probably going to win the MVP. He was a top three MVP player last year. It's at least top two this year, if not the winner. And he's kicking everyone's ass in the postseason. Baseball. 
This is the type of person you should be promoting. This is your star. You know, it's got a, a Houston championship could mean the final piece of the Hall of Fame puzzle for Carlos Beltran and Justin Verlander as well. Whether or not they need that is up for debate. With a championship, there's not really going to be much of a debate. Especially the fact that Verlander keeps winning in the postseason. But we should appreciate this with Altuve. I am. I'm appreciating the hell out of it. He smacked my Red Sox around. Now he's smacking the Yankees around. Imagine for the Astros and their fans. They have to beat the Red Sox. They have to beat the Yankees. And if they beat the Yankees, they have to beat either the Dodgers or the Cubs. You're facing big market teams and everything like that. And this little guy taking them on. Boom, boom, boom. Gee whiz, if only there was a way to promote that. So, and of course the Dodgers. I got to give the Dodgers a ton of credit. Because I actually did not think they were going to get past the Diamondbacks. I thought the Dodgers looked like they were stumbling into the postseason a little bit of a mess. And I thought the Diamondbacks were a team that could catch them off guard. And as it turned out, the Dodgers, while not playing at the, I think, the the level that the Astros have, I think even though the Astros have lost the game, I think the Astros have been the most impressive team this postseason, the Dodgers have been winning when they need to win. They've been getting the hits when they needed the hits. And Puig and Turner and the and Bellinger and the people have been getting the big smacks when they need it. And the relief core for the Dodgers, the Jansons, the Maedas, the um the Singranis, the all the players who the Brandon Morrows have all been coming up so big and the right buttons have been pushed each time. As of this recording, they haven't lost a game. As of this recording, we could see 200-win teams in the World Series. We haven't had two 100-win teams in the World Series since 1970. It hasn't happened in my lifetime. that You've had two teams that have won 100 games in the World Series. That was the Reds versus the Orioles, and the Orioles won that. The Orioles won 108, the Reds won 102. It had, we haven't had that since Nixon's first term was the last time the two 100-win teams were in the World Series. And we have a chance to see that happen with Los Angeles and with Houston, which, of course, Fox is drooling and sacrificing animals to see the Yankees play the Cubs in the World Series while I'm sent here wanting a Dodgers-Astros World Series. Let me just say one more thing. There was the game yesterday where there was the play at the plate and that was initially called out, and they saw that uh, Wilson Contreras was blocking the plate, and so it was called, it was a, the interference call, the Buster Posey rule, and um, he, was, uh, he was called out. He was the first, it was, it was called safe. Initially he was called out, and they saw that, wait a minute, the catcher didn't give him a lane, which is the Buster Posey rule. Um, and Ron Darling went crazy, and a lot of people were like, oh, this is terrible for baseball, so not old school. First of all, it's the rule. That's what the rule is. If you don't like the rule, then change the rule. The rule is there to protect catchers from not getting their legs broken. I don't want to see catchers getting their legs broken. Uh, I think that if Contreras didn't put his leg across, 
Uh, he uh, would have made the tag and it would have been fine. The guy didn't touch home plate, but the reason he didn't touch home plate is because the guy's leg was across. Just play the rules. Play by the rules. And things are fine. And I find it strange that the Cub fans who are thinking that the the Jose Lobaton thing wasn't ticky-tack is finding this to be ticky-tack. You, you can't have it both ways. You know, this is what the rules are. The way he blocked the plate is against the way the rules are. And so because of that, that's what happened. It's not that hard to understand. And also, I mean, look at I, I I'm I'm... I'm not a big believer in, you know, in saying sometimes like, you know, don't worry about this because the game could have gone on in a different way had it been 4-2 instead of 5-2. But the fact of the matter is, they didn't lose that game because of that play. They had a bunch of chances to score runs, the Cubs did. They had a bunch of chances to add to their lead, and they didn't. And they were losing at that point. And the way that the Dodgers' bullpen was pitching, they probably were going to lose at the end. That wasn't the reason why the Cubs lost. That wasn't the walk-off play. That wasn't the end of the game. And so, you know, the Cubs knocked out, basically, Kershaw after five innings and had a chance to build on an early lead, and they didn't. And that's why they lost. So, let's just move on from that, shall we? I'm rooting big time for the Dodgers who play right down the street and for the Astros because I don't, I'm not physically prepared for a Yankee pennant. And also I'm a big believer that two 100 win teams featuring some of the brightest players in all of baseball looking to get their first World Series championship and a bunch of veterans who have been there for a long time looking for their first ever as well. I think that's good for baseball. And maybe that's good for my psyche as I try to sort out some of the things going on in my life. Of which the only thing I'm going to share with you all in terms of that is got to find out where the hell the smoke detector is. Otherwise I'm going, maybe the house is on fire. Maybe that's what's going on. I should probably check that. Well, if there's a podcast later this week, then you know the house did not burn down. Or maybe I'll be recording from the ashes of this house and what a symbol that would be. So go to sullybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Hey, thanks for hanging in, especially when I needed to take care of some stuff for me. Uh, I figured if there's going to be a, any point of the year where if you need a little taste of baseball and your pal Sully couldn't do it, it would be during the postseason. There's a lot of baseball going on, and i got to take care of my house, including finding the smoke alarm. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.